Okay, let's get started. So we find ourselves during the three-week period of mourning between the 17th of Tammuz and the 9th of Av. The 9th of Av, of course, is the culmination of this period of mourning and is the uh, anniversary, the date on which the first Beis HaMikdash and the second Beis HaMikdash, the two temples, were destroyed. So there's a heavy focus on the mourning related to that, as well as tragic events that preceded those dates and subsequent tragic dates as well. So uh, there's definitely a heavy focus on the second Beis HaMikdash, which gets destroyed approximately the year 68, 69 uh, of the Common Era, so approximately 1,950 years ago. And then the subsequent generations of the various Jewish revolts against the Romans, and which are brutally put down by various Romans, uh, Roman emperors and others, and the the tragedy of of hundreds of thousands of millions of Jews who were killed as the Jewish people lost their connection with their uh, with the Beis Hamikdash as well as with the uh, last vestige of Jewish sovereignty's uh, sovereignty that we experienced during that time. Um, now, throughout. Uh, throughout history, there have been all kinds of horrible persecution of the Jews, right? We know many of us uh, here on this uh, in this uh, class are Ashkenazi Jews, so we're familiar with the Christian persecution of the Jews, um, which took place, started, you know, in the, in the generations um, uh, much later, of course, or closer to the year to the year 1000. And you have the Crusades, you have the Inquisitions, you have the pogroms, you have blood libels, you have charges of desecration of the host. Uh, all kinds of terrible things, and of course, culminating most recently in the Holocaust. But throughout Europe, everywhere in Europe, Jews were horribly mistreated. And um, an area that we're a little bit less familiar with, that we don't focus on as much, is the suffering of Jews in the Muslim world. Jews in the Muslim world in the Middle East, uh, especially... Uh, is an area that we're not as familiar with, and it wasn't all fun and games. It's not only that Jews got persecuted under the were persecuted under the rule of the Christians, but not under the rule of the Muslims. Uh, they were in fact horribly persecuted in the Muslim world as well. And what, what we're going to talk about today is going to shed light on the persecution of Jews who lived in North Africa. So let's talk about. Uh, the personality who writes the letter that we're going to focus on. Let's talk about the Rambam. So Rabbi, the Rambam, Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon, known as the Great Eagle, one of the greatest Jewish thinkers uh, to uh, ever live, great scholar, extremely righteous, pious, prolific writer, incredible uh, individual. We're not going to be able to give a full overview of his very rich life, but what we can say uh, is the following. He was born approximately the year 135, 138. There are different opinions. Uh, passed away in the year 1204. He was born in the city of Cordoba in Spain, and uh, he made several stops uh, after that. He lived in, uh, in North Africa and Morocco, lived in the uh, land of Israel briefly, and eventually settled in, in Egypt, where he lived uh, the, out the rest of his life. So starting out in Cordoba, things were pretty peaceful. Uh, Cordoba at the time was under the rule of the Almoravid dynasty, which is a pretty moderate dynasty. Jews and Christians had second-class status. They were dhimis, uh, which means that they had second-class status. They were allowed to live and practice their religion as long as they paid a special tax uh, to the ruling Muslims. But when the Rambam was only around 10 or 12 years old, actually a radical Islamic group called the Almohads took control of Cordoba, the part of Spain that he lived in. And 
uh, in 1148, they started implementing their much more vicious and militant brand of Islam, and they essentially forced the Jews of Cordoba to either convert to Islam or to be expelled from that area. And that didn't leave the Jews with, with much of a choice. The Rambam's family, he was, a young, he was young, he was a teen, young teen, uh, they moved around Spain to avoid the Almohad persecution. Eventually, in 1159... Uh, they moved to North Africa, to Morocco. Um, the Morocco, Tunisia, Libya, that entire region is a very, uh, is a, is a, re is a region with a lot of very rich Jewish history. It's commonly known as the Maghreb, uh, which is, uh, Arabic. It means the West, right? Uh, similar to Hebrew, Ma'arav, and, uh, Maghreb, Ma'arab. And, um, because it is the Western edge of the Islamic world, um, of the time. And so they moved there to uh, to Morocco, and they lived in Morocco for a while. And from there, the Rambam, as we know, moves on to Israel briefly, and then to Egypt. Uh, but he always called himself Moshe ben Maimon Hasfardi from Spain. He was from Spain. He was very proud of his Spanish roots and uh, the community that he came from. And so the letter we're going to talk about today is a, the earliest letter we have from the Rambam. It's a letter written before he even got to Egypt. Uh, it was either written in the Maghreb, in Morocco, or on the way to the land of Israel. It's not as well known as some of his other letters, um, but this is a very, very fundamental letter and has a lot of very important content and very important lessons. This letter, like virtually everything else the Rambam wrote, was written in Arabic. All right, the Rambam wrote his uh, uh, commentary on the Mishnah in Arabic. He wrote his letters in Arabic. All those were eventually translated into Hebrew. Um, but, um, the, you know, of course, his, his code of Jewish law, the Mishnah Torah, that was written in, in a very rich Mishnahic Hebrew, but everything else was written in Arabic because he wanted people to be able to read it. And the Jews of the time were very fluent, were fluent in Arabic, uh, actually Judeo-Arabic. They would interestingly write uh, Arabic with Hebrew script. Very interesting, very similar to kind of like how Yiddish is also um, 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 written with Hebrew script, but it's not Hebrew. And... That's uh, how he, he would, uh, the Rambam would communicate with the Jews of his time. What's interesting is that this particular letter, we don't have the original Arabic. And there are several explanations for why that might be. But virtually every other letter of the Rambam, we do have the original Arabic. And because we have the original Arabic of the uh, other letters of the Rambam, we can translate them again. We can um, um, try to understand the original intent of the language. But here we only have the original the Hebrew translation. So what's the background of this letter? So it goes like this. As we said, this radical group, the Almohads, are forcing Jews to convert to Islam. Now, it's very hard for us to judge them uh, from our position, but what's very clear, what we know, what happened is that tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of Jews could not withstand the test. And so what did they do? They publicly pretended to convert to Islam so that they can remain living where they were, so that they will not be harmed, so that they would not have to be expelled from their land. What does converting to Islam mean? So, in, in Islam, one converts by sincerely saying the Shahada. What is the Shahada? The Shahada is the testimony which says that there is no God but Allah, right? There's no God but Hashem, and Muhammad, his messenger. Anybody who says the Shahada in front of witnesses 
becomes a Muslim. And so that's what the Jews of North Africa, the Jews of Spain, were forced to do. They publicly had to say the Shahada. They would publicly have to outwardly pretend to be Muslims, but they would privately go about their lives as Jews. And the Muslims all knew that they were going about their lives as Jews, but they just wanted them to publicly convert to Islam. So the question of the day is, of his time, of the Rambam's time, the pressing question, which was on everyone's mind, is what is the status of these Jews? Here you have Jews who converted to Islam. Right now, let's say perhaps the Almohads move on from one city and now that city is freed from their grip. Can they, do they now, do we now welcome them back? Do we welcome back Jews who pretended to be Muslims? What, what is their status? Did they do the right thing? Did they do the wrong thing? What's going on? So a letter was circulated by a rabbi. We don't know who. And there's a, this letter was very widely circulated. It was deliberately sent to every Jewish community in North Africa and it was, Written by someone who lived most likely in Europe under Christian rule. We don't know. Again, we don't know who it was. But this individual wrote, penned a very forceful and important, uh, very forceful letter. And the letter said the following. He said, Jews who are forced to convert to Islam should have allowed themselves to be killed. They should not have pretended to convert to Islam. And even if they never meant the Shahada, even if they never meant to testify that Muhammad is the messenger of God, right? Remember, the Shahada itself is not so so challenging to uh, to Jewish uh, the Jewish approach to understanding who God is, right? The Shahada says there is no God but Allah. There's no God but Hashem, which which is 100% uh, the right thing. That's true. Okay, the part that we don't like is that it says that Muhammad is the messenger of God. Okay. But this rabbi who wrote a letter to the Jewish communities of North Africa said, even if you never meant the Shahada, you can never come back and join the Jewish people. You are gone. You now have the status of a Gentile. You are a goy. You are for, you are um, a non. You are not a kosher witness. Okay, Islam in his mind is idolatrous, and he says that you Jews who pretended to convert to Islam no longer have a status of a Jew. Shocking to our minds, but he says further. He says not only do these do these um, uh, do these individuals no longer have the status of a Jew, but he says God doesn't want them to go and practice the mitzvos in private. He says Hashem doesn't want them to go to mosque on Friday and then go home and make kiddush and sing lechadodi Friday night. Hashem doesn't want that. He said he'd rather them just be non-Jews. And so this letter is sent to all the Jewish communities of North Africa, and it created horrible confusion to a, to a Jewish communities that were already experiencing a horrible crisis. Because not only are they facing this crisis, but they also now are forced to contend with the fact that they are being told that they are being written out of Jewish history entirely. And so the Rambam, who is not very old, remember we said this is written approximately the year 1165, Somewhere around there, he was born approximately 1135. So he's, he's 30, maybe in his young 30s. And the Rambam sees that the equivalent of an atom bomb is being dropped on the Jewish communities of North Africa. And they are essentially being told, don't even bother to hold on, right? They had a tenuous grasp on their Judaism. These are people who are hiding in, in cowering in basements, trying to keep the basics of Yiddishkeit. And they are being told, don't even bother 
you guys are no longer Jews. So the Rambam felt a pressing need to set the record straight. And he knew, he wasn't, remember, he's only in his 30s. He is not very well known. He had to do it in a way that was so emphatic and so eloquent that it would really, really make a very strong impression on his readers. And so the Rambam writes this letter, the Igeres Hashma, the letter of persecution. And the letter goes like this. The Rambam writes, he says, had this letter simply humiliated and embarrassed my community, right, the community of Sephardic North African Jews, we would have been quiet. We would have even said that the letter writer might have had good intentions. You know what? It's not our place. We don't, we're okay being humble and being, and being embarrassed and shamed by others. He says, but once this rabbi from Europe, who wrote this letter to the Jews in North Africa. Remember, this is somebody who lived in, under Christian rule. He doesn't understand Islam, doesn't understand what the Jews in the Muslim world are going through. Okay, Once he said that of Jews who pretend to be Muslim should not daven at home, should not keep the Torah, he said, I feel forced to respond to him. He said, we know if something is written down anywhere, it suddenly becomes authoritative. Someone somewhere will believe it and will create a movement around it. And because I'm nervous that somebody will take what this rabbi wrote seriously um, and not daven and not perform mitzvos, uh, I feel compelled to, to respond. So first, he says, let me destroy the authority of the rabbi by simply pointing out stylistically why this rabbi is um, is just not serious about the job that he supposedly undertook. He says, first of all, he says, this rabbi wrote in a very lengthy manner. It is a very dense and lengthy uh, um, letter that he sent to the Jews of North Africa. He says, quote, even someone lacking a brain can see right through this. This is harsh language to write about anybody, right? He says, stylistically, writing lengthy is just poor. Uh, it's just uh, it's just an indication that a person has poor judgment, right? He says, when a person speaks publicly, they should review everything they were they intend to say. They should review four times. Uh, if he plans on writing something down to be available to the masses, if a person can. They should review it 1,000 times if possible. And clearly this rabbi just simply wrote something down, jotted it down, didn't bother editing it, and just sent it off without being precise in his language and being very clear about what he's trying to do. So without getting into content, the Rambam is criticizing this person for the style with which he went about communicating. All right, this is obviously an important lesson for us today when we have um, unsurpassed ability to communicate with people and share our opinion on things. Uh, this idea that you shouldn't write until you review something, if possible, a thousand times is very important. And the Rambam says, honestly, I didn't want to jump down his throat. I didn't want to jump on him and criticize him until I heard everything. But to be honest, it just got worse as it went on. And he says, I'm going to refute now some of his points. But don't think just because I refute some and not all of his points that any of what he wrote was was valid. He says, in fact, none of it was valid. Uh, but I want to try to keep my own uh, letter short, the Rambam says. And another thing the Rambam 
um, mocks um, in terms of the style that the rabbi um, deploys is that the rabbi from Europe uh, starts bringing brings proofs from all kinds of different places in the Torah, and the Rambam says, "Did we ask you? Nobody asked you for a collection of all the various sins in the Torah and how they can be connected to this situation." Okay, but we'll get to more about that shortly. So let's bring up some points that this rabbi writes in his letter and how the Rambam counterpointed it. Number one, this rabbi quotes a Gemara that says, "A person who worships idols is like he denies the entire Torah." And therefore, he says, a person who converts to Islam is like they deny the entire Torah. And says the Rambam, he says, a person, he says, what a stretch. You comparing somebody who willingly worships idols, right, to somebody who is compelled to convert to Islam, which is not even idolatrous, which is not even idol worship. And even those who supposedly force them to convert to Islam know that it's fake. So there's that. Second, says this rabbi from Europe. There are two, there's a Pasuk that says that the Jewish people did two things wrong. That they would uh, bow to idols and then they would go to the Beis HaMikdash. And, and so similarly says this rabbi, the Jews who go to mosque and then go daven to Hashem and go keep Shabbos um, are similarly mocking Hashem by doing that. And he says you can't compare Right? He says, here you have Jews who are really trying to glorify the name of Hashem by performing the mitzvahs. And yes, they have to go to the mosque earlier and do that. You can't compare that to somebody who is an idolater who wants to bring the impurity of idol worship into the base of Mikdash, which is what that verse is referring to. Another point is that this individual says that Christians believe that a person should give up their life rather than say the shahada, rather than say that that um, the Hashem is... Uh, is the God and that Muhammad is his messenger. So, so the, so the Rambam writes, the Rambam is flabbergasted. He says, do we not have our own God? Do we need to really start bringing proofs from Christians? Right? He says, just because a lot of people say something, other people say something doesn't mean we should do it. He says, if people, uh, if other people sacrifice their children, does that mean we should sacrifice our children? No way. And another, another point this person says is that Islam is idolatrous. And in Mecca, there he says, I'm sorry, in Mecca there are idols that they that they serve. Ramam says, Nobody asked you. Nobody asked whether or not you should go on the Hajj, on the pilgrimage to Mecca or not. And um uh if we take a break from this particular letter, I could share with you that the Rambam has a different letter, which is written to a uh an individual named Ovadia the Ger, Ovadia the convert. Ovadia, his original name was Abdullah. Abdallah means servant of God, right? Which translates beautifully to Ovadia. And he says, um, um, Ovadia, the convert, sends a letter to the Rambam saying, I asked my rabbi in Jerusalem whether Islam is idolatrous. And he mocked me and said, of course it's idolatrous. And um, he says, um, Rambam, I um, I know that it's not idol worship. Um, what What is its status? And the Rambam writes a beautiful letter. We could talk about it perhaps in another class. And he says... Islam is not idolatrous, but he does say that in Mecca, uh, as part of the Islamic Hajj, as part of the pilgrimage that all Muslims are supposed to take once in their life to Mecca, uh, they do uh, perform certain acts which are holdovers from a, a time period when they did worship idols. For example, they throw, until today, until modern times, they throw rocks at a pillar um, outside of Mecca or outside of Medina, I forget which one. 
And um, he says, true, that the origin of that is Avodah Zarah, right? We're all familiar. Many Anybody who studied Mishnah knows that, that one of the largest um, um, idol idol worshiping uh, behaviors of the time was uh, the idol of Marcolus. They would throw stones at Marcolus, right? Um, but says the Rambam, nowadays, no Muslim is throwing stones at, at those pillars and having idolatrous thoughts. They've managed to reinvent the uh, meaning of these uh, rituals to be purely monotheistic. We're not going to get into it uh, that much. And so, the, But the Rambam says, he says, nobody asked if these Jews should go on a Hajj to Mecca. They shouldn't go. Nobody's, we're not discussing that at all. What are you talking about? Another point that this rabbi makes is that Muhammad killed 24,000 Jews. The Rambam says, nobody asked whether Muhammad has a share in the world to come, right? That's not what the, uh, that's not what we're discussing at all. And um, that's really not relevant. Now, what's interesting is that, is that the Rambam, when he writes about Muhammad, he does not call him Muhammad, right? He calls him Hamashuga, the crazy one, which when you think about the fact that the Rambam is living, uh, either having just left a radical Islamic regime and was going to a more moderate one, right? Or he might still be under the grip of the Almohads, or right, maybe sometime in the future would be the risk that he uh, went through to to write very strongly about Islam being wrong to such an extent that he writes that Muhammad uh, is Meshuga, right? Calls him the crazy one um, is an extremely courageous act, and that might be one of the explanations for why this letter is not found in its original Arabic because Jews did not want to keep it around um, because of that, and so. Um, so that's, that's some of the points. So the Rambam now pivots and starts talking about the danger of speaking negatively about groups of Jews. So he starts walking us through Jewish history and shows us, um, how time after time, some of the greatest leaders of the Jewish people were, were punished for speaking negatively about groups of Jews. So number one, Moshe Rabbeinu. Jewish people are enslaved in Egypt. They are very far from being spiritually elevated. They're not circumcised. They don't have bris milah, which is a very basic marking of a Jew. They are engaged in questionable um, marital um, arrangements. And Moshe Rabbeinu says to Hashem, he says, They will not listen to me. And Hashem says, Excuse me, Moshe, you're talking about the Jewish people? He says, They are ma'aminim b'nei ma'aminim. They are believers, the sons of believers. And don't talk about Jewish people like that. You, Moshe, are not going to believe, and that's referencing later on in his uh, um, story. But um, he, uh, Moshe, gets punished with leprosy for suspecting the Jewish people. That's Moshe. Then you have Eliyahu and Navi. Eliyahu and Navi, the Jewish people during the times of Eliyahu and Navi, everybody worshipped idols except for seven thousand people. And Eliyahu and Navi says to Hashem, He says, "They have abandoned your covenant, God." And Hashem says, "Eliyahu, excuse me, is it your covenant?" not your covenant, it was my covenant. Elio says, okay, but they destroyed your altar. Hashem says, excuse me, Elio, was it your altar? No, it was my altar. You mind your own business. Elio says, but they killed your prophets, your Nevi'im. Hashem says, really? I see you, you're alive, you're a Navi. And Elio says, yeah, but I'm running, I'm hiding, I'm a fugitive, I'm in exile, right? And um, Hashem, because of how he spoke to the Jewish, about the Jewish people, forced him into exile uh, in the desert. 
even though um, they were all idol worshippers. That's with Elio. Yeshayo Anavi, the same thing. He says, he, uh, the prophet Isaiah says to Hashem, he says, I dwell amongst a nation of impure lips. And this is a generation that worshipped idols, committed murder. Chilul Hashem, desecrated the name of God. And Yeshayo gets punished um, uh, in several ways. One of them actually culminates in him being murdered by the, the wicked King Menashe. So the Rabbim brings case after case of the greatest Jews of all times, the greatest prophets, the greatest kings of all time, um, the greatest leaders, Moshe Rabbeinu, Eliyahu Anavi, Anavi, all giving small criticisms to the Jewish people, but getting punished by Hashem for speaking negatively about the Jewish people. Says the Rambam, if this is true, by some of the greatest leaders of the Jewish people, talking about a generation, their own generations, which were genuinely wicked, how much more so that this individual who's the lightest of the light, in terms of, you know, he's a lightweight, um, this rabbi from Europe, who is talking about the holiest Jewish communities of North Africa, communities filled with Torah scholars and Kohanim and Levian, calling them wicked, calling them sinners, saying that they are they have no share in the Jewish people. How, how What kind of punishment is he going to get? And the Rambam continues and says that this individual, this rabbi claims that a Jew who pretends to be a non-Jew to save himself is not considered a sinner. Um, I'm sorry, that's what the Rambam says, because this individual says a person who pretends to be a non-Jew um, um, is a sinner. And the Rambam brings several stories here. He talks from Chazal. Uh, he starts off with Chazal, and he tells the story of Rabbi Meir. Rabbi Meir, also known as Rabbi Meir, Baal Hanes. Fascinating story where he's sent to Rome to rescue his sister-in-law. Rescues his sister-in-law. The Roman police are after him. They're looking for Abbey Mayer. Somebody identifies him. They start chasing after him. He ducks into a non-kosher restaurant. They say, excuse me, are you Abbey Mayer? And he sticks, he orders, he sticks his finger into a pig or pork dish, pretends to eat it, right? Say that he licked the other finger and um, they go away. And so Rabbi Mayer pretends to be a non-Jew. Remember, what's this rabbi writing to the Jews in North Africa? That if you pretend to be a non-Jew, you have the status of a non-Jew. You're non-kosher witness. So the Rambam says this guy actually would believe that Rabbi Meir himself has the status of a non-Jew. That's utterly ridiculous. And he quotes another story. Rabbi Eliezer uh, pretended to be, uh, during a time of persecution, by a group of people who did not believe in God at all. They were actually atheists, militant atheists, which the Rambam says is worse than idol worship. He says, idol worship, at least you acknowledge that there's a higher power. Um, but um, atheists don't even believe that. And this individual summons Rabbi Eliezer and says, what's going on? You're a smart guy. Why do you believe in God? And Rabbi Eliezer answered in, uh, with an answer that seemed to be him indicating that he also agrees that Hashem is not in charge of the world, but he actually meant it completely differently. But he pretended outwardly to agree with this individual. And same thing. The Rambam says, are you telling me this rabbi Right to this rabbi near, are you telling me that Rabbi Yezer is not a kosher witness? Right? And he says, certainly here, where these Jews in North Africa, they believe in Hashem. Right? They believe in one God. All they're being asked to do is say that there's one God. And they're adding that Muhammad is his messenger. And not only that, but the Muslims themselves know that the Jewish people are not sincere about it. Rabbi brings another example. He says, during the times of Nebuchadnezzar, there were three 
people who didn't bow down to an idol. And the rest of them did, including the leadership of the Jewish people. Right? Only Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah didn't bow down to an idol. And we're, we're told that the, many of the other Jews who were there are called the Cheresh and the Masker. These are people who took their, um, uh, who were very sophisticated Jews, but they seemingly did bow down to the idol of Nebuchadnezzar. And nobody ever called all these others, other than Hanani, Mishael, and Azariah, wicked uh, or non-Jews or not right non-kosher witnesses because they were forced. And not only that, but we find by the Purim story that Hashem winds up saving them. Hanukkah as well, right? We do have Matzio and his sons, and they are were incredible leaders of the Jewish people. But everybody else besides for them pretty much pretended to go along with the decrees of Antiochus. And these are people who outwardly pretend to abandon uh, to abandon Hashem. And we still say that the wicked were delivered in the hands of the few. The wicked were delivered in the hands, excuse me, in the hands of the righteous. And these individuals are still called righteous, even if, um, are still called righteous. Another very important point the Rambam makes, he says, Judaism is not all or nothing. A person gets rewarded for the good that he does, no matter what. And he proves it. And he says, and what's the connection here? Of course, he says that these individuals from North Africa who are going to mosque, but then they're going home and they're performing mitzvahs, they're going to get rewarded for performing the mitzvahs. So says the Rambam, of course, you're going to get rewarded for performing the mitzvahs, right? This rabbi from Europe said they actually shouldn't perform the mitzvahs. So Judaism is not all or nothing. Very important. Right. A person gets rewarded for all of the good that he does. There was a wicked Jewish king named Ahav, idol worshiper, denied Hashem. He killed many, many, uh, many uh, Nevi'im, many prophets, but he fasted two and a half hours and he gets rewarded uh, for that, even though he did all kinds of horrible things. Eglon, the king of Moab, was a terrorized the Jews, but he rose from his throne when he heard the name of Hashem. And as a result of that small act, Rising from his throne, he merited to have kings descend from him. He was, of course, the ancestor of Ruth, Ruth, and Ruth, uh, um, Ruth uh, from her comes forth the Davidic dynasty, David, Shlomo, and eventually Mashiach, all from that. Another example he brings, Nebuchadnezzar, the horrible Nebuchadnezzar, who burnt and destroyed the first base of Mikdash, killed as many Jews as there were sand in the sea, along the sea. Uh, we're told. So he committed genocide, destroys the base of Mikdash. Is there anything that he gets rewarded for? And what are we told? That he took four steps towards uh, the uh, Chizkiah, and therefore he ruled for 40 years. So what's the backstory? story? They're a very interesting story. This actually goes back to when, before Nebuchadnezzar becomes the king um, of the Babylonians. Uh, he was uh, he worked as a scribe, and the king of Chizkiah uh, of Judah had become sick uh, and then recovered. And uh, from the Persian, from the Babylonian Empire, they're sending a letter expressing how happy, um, uh, uh, how happy that that he was feeling better. And and the way the letter was written, it says, "Peace to the great King Chizkio, to the city of Yerushalayim, and to uh, Hashem, to the God of Israel." And Nebuchadnezzar caught it and said, "It's not appropriate to put the God last; put the God first. And as a result of that. He was rewarded with having a very long, very stable um, um, tenure as king.
We also find Esau, same thing. He was also very wicked, but he got rewarded for honoring his father. Bottom line is, Hashem gives reward to everybody. How much more so, right? How much more so, these Jews, who of course should keep whatever mitzvahs they can, and there's no basis to the notion that anyone can ever be punished for doing a mitzvah. He says, that's ridiculous. Okay, now, yes, you do have, a person does have to give up their life for the three cardinal mitzvahs, etc., etc., the Ramah goes into that, right? He says, if a person is said, is told, convert to Islam or die, and they chose, choose to say the Shahada and to convert to Islam, he says, um, he says, you know, we say that they'll be rewarded for doing that. He said, however, if somebody asks us and says, should we give up our life rather than uh, convert to Islam? Uh, we will tell them, uh, don't give up your life. Pretend to convert to Islam. So, they should pretend to convert to, convert to Islam. That's what the Ramah says. Now, what would we really say the Ramah says? We would tell them, um, you should run away. You should ideally run away. A person, Rambam writes about this in several places, a person should not live amongst wicked people and if they force you to ask, act like them, you should run away. The Rambam says something very interesting. He says, don't wait around for Mashiach. A lot of people are sitting tight and saying, I would run, but you know what, Mashiach's coming anyway in two, three years, right? This is back uh, 950 years ago, right? I'm not going to run away, it's okay. Rambam says, don't live, don't plan as if Mashiach is coming tomorrow, Right? It looked, might look like he's coming, but it's not definite. There's no way to really know, right? Imagine that's over almost a thousand years ago. Uh, and here we are today with the same thing. And the Rambam says, one of the ways he says that a person, right? Remember we said a person gets rewarded for even the smallest things that he does, which are a mitzvah. He gets rewarded for it. Um, he also gets punished for the small things. He says, just because someone is punished for the big things, does that mean he's not going to get also punished? For the small things, he will. And the way he says it is actually quite humorous. He says that Yeravam, the king of Israel, right? If you remember, the kings are David, Shlomo, and then Shlomo is the son, Rechavam. And Rechavam um, takes poor advice, long story short. And Yeravam, who creates a new kingdom in the north, the northern kingdom, he manages to... Um, uh, he, I'm sorry, he puts... Um, calves for Jews to worship and to bow down to um, at the borders of his kingdom and basically caused the Jews to worship idols and and um, he of course is a is a terrible person in the annals of Jewish history now what what we're told says Rabbim very interestingly is that Yeravim will get punished for worshiping idols of course badly but you know what he else will get punished for he'll get punished also for not doing Erev Tafshil and for also Right, for not doing an Arab to allow him to cook on a holiday on the Yantif. So everybody gets punished, even for the smallest things, and they get rewarded even for the smallest things. So that's a story with that. So with this uh we can uh we can end and give us a give a bracha that hopefully um um, understanding the persecution of, of our ancestors, the Jewish people throughout the world, will um, be um, helpful for us as we have find a perspective on this time period 
and that um, um, hopefully Tishra this year will be canceled and uh, instead we'll be celebrating it. Um, and if it's not, then uh, we'll be here and we'll, uh, we'll um, hopefully very shortly merit to see Mashiach come. Thank you.